0: Great stuff. Right. We're in Colossians. We've been in Colossians for a few weeks. We're in Colossians chapter 3 uh, in a moment. Um, but I need to do two things kind of by way of setting the scene this morning uh, before we actually get to the passage itself. Uh, the Paul writing to Colossians just want to remind us uh, of the context he was writing into. And to that we're going to assemble a visual illustration. I need Peter Ann to come and kind of stand imposingly in front of my lectern here. And then he can have his wife come and stand at his feet here. <laughs> <laughs> and then there are actually a few of his children here today. There should be nine of them. So we'll get this middle right here first. And then we're going to gather a few more bodies randomly to make up a few more. Um, so if you are in, quickly, come on down. If you are in your 20s, come Go on, on down quickly, There are seven of you. Because this is this, not a child, this is a wife of a child. Ooh, All right, right good, okay. this is excellent. Right.
1: <laughs> good, okay,
0: love it. We can, we can. We got. Don't We've got too many. We can add in a few. That's great. We'll add a few wives right. as well. Yeah. Okay. Good. We're getting there. That's great. And then we need John McNally. Where are you? John McNally. Because you're in the household, so you can come and you can come and kneel at their feet because you're the slave John's, in the household. John's the lodger. All right. I need a few more of them. Slaves. Right, can we have
2: a, a few more slaves? Eat come on, Graham children. and Helen, you look two slavish. Children. Two more Two more <laughs> 20s and
0: <laughs> 30s. Yeah, that's it. You can come be yeah, older. Two oh, more
2: children. <laughs> more 20s and 30s around. Come, come
0: on, down. Simon and Emily, bring, bring the oh, yeah, baby. Yeah. What should we do it? With... Yes. Are there any babies in the house this yeah, morning Yeah, yeah, we've got... Don't go away, Graham, we need you. Yeah. Yeah, that's one, that's two. A third baby in the house?
2: Yeah, we've got... No, we've just got a couple of babies.
0: Yeah, great, excellent. Oh, good, we've
2: got Thea. okay.
0: Right, snuggle right, in, that's snuggle That's pretty in. much it, right? That'll do nicely. That is, folks, a household. Now you might have been used to you, uh, uh, your partner, a couple of kids, and that's your household. No, this is the kind of household that Paul was appealing to when he wrote Colossians. whole stack of people, uh, the assembled family, all living under one household. Get that in your heads as we look at the passage this morning. Great, guys, thank you very much. Don't go away in your So that's the social context Paul's writing to. And then we've got to look at the passage this morning. Remember everything that's kind of gone before, uh, we've been looking at over recent weeks. And Bex is going to come and read a poem now to us, which reminds us of kind of where we got to last week in our response to what God had written uh, up to now to us.
1: It's time for a wardrobe detox. A much needed overhaul, purging the old to make room for the new, because there's just not space for it all. Ditch the t-shirt I wore as a teen, the socks I love but have holes in, the jumper that's kind of stretched and grown with me, the clothes that have become my second skin, because I am a different person now in the light, no longer in darkness. So I need a new look to put off the old. Now is the time to be ruthless. Bitterness is not my color, mocking doesn't suit me. Anger and lying are so unflattering, and bitchiness, it's just ugly. No, it doesn't matter how long I've had them, God's image, it's much better. His perfect trend of self-control and kindness, loving and forgiving each other.
0: We've been looking at over recent weeks, remember, is the, the greatness of who Jesus is, the one in whom are all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. The one who is the ultimate saviour, the supreme saviour. The one who has done everything for us. And out of that, who we are called to take on a new image, a new self. To be clothed in his likeness. And allow the very nature of God to start to work out its way in us and through us to those around us. We need all of that in the back of our minds. As we now move to what kind of seems like a, a sudden change of tack, as Paul writes to us.
2: The thing that makes me sad is that we have to do this in this kind of context. We're on a platform and you're all sat there in rows looking polite. So can you imagine a, a sort of house that's quite hot and it's actually crammed with people? All those kind of ages and stages that we've had up the front. Babies are crying and people are coming and going. And somebody's reading a letter to them uh, of stuff they've never ever heard before. They've never heard it. They don't know it's in the pages of the Bible because the Bible doesn't exist yet. It's a letter. Okay. And they've had all the bit that we've had chopped up in bits over several weeks. They've had that all read already. And they get to this bit. And somebody says, wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything. For this pleases the Lord. Slaves, obey your earthly masters in everything and do it not only when their eye is on you and to win their favor, but with sincerity of heart and reverence for the Lord. Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for men, since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. It's the Lord Christ you are serving. Anyone who does wrong will be repaid for his wrong, and there is no favoritism. Masters, provide your slaves with what is right and fair, because you know that you also have a master in heaven.
0: Okay, so Paul's, apparently over the previous bits we've been looking at previous weeks, ...a kind of theological backdrop, if you like. And today, he hits the reality of daily life. Kind of with a bang. He turns the key relationships of of every day... ...in the household. Um, Because these verses, in many ways, are the climax to the letter. This is where everything Paul's been writing needs to take shape. Everything he's been saying about Jesus has to find life... ...in the context of everyday relationships... He wasn't interested in some ethereal ideas. You see, that. remember the, the, the society he was writing to, some people were kind of getting this idea there was kind of special knowledge that was kind of super spiritual and otherworldly and the mundane everyday didn't count. A kind of dualistic thinking. Paul wasn't interested in that. He wanted to cut right across that. For him, there was, there was a holistic way in which things needed to be seen. So he wasn't into ethereal stuff. He wanted a faith that had a day-to-day reality. The way to test the quality of our spirituality is to test the quality of our relationships, not the intensity of the individual experiences we have had. That's what Paul is saying to us while bring these verses. do read them just as kind of in isolation, see in the context of what's gone before. There's a challenge here to see that if our relationships, our everyday lives, are not lived out in the way we're going to explore this morning then there's something missing in our relationship with Jesus. That's the challenge that we have this morning. And there's a challenge there for us to look at the quality of our relationships uh, and see what God is saying to us. For Jesus to have supremacy in everything, for him to be the head over all, has got to find reality in our daily lives. It has to mean something on a Monday morning as we go to work, to make a difference behind the closed doors of our own homes. Now these verses, what kind of if you read some of the kind of commentary stuff behind this, uh, what were called a household code. Household code? Get it right? Household code. No, household code. Um, a kind of this is how life should be in, in your houses, folks. And it wasn't something that Paul kind of created because he wanted to sort of set up something new. Actually, this kind of code way of writing was fairly familiar to society around. And there's various. Arguments about whether they were originated with the Greeks, with, with even the Jews themselves, um, but the thing about Paul's code, into the context he was writing, was that it's countercultural, utterly, utterly different to what they would expect. See, we, you've had the household here before this morning, and the, what people had expected here in a household, cold was, household code was—household code was—I'm in trouble. With that night, um, Peter Allen, Master Supreme, demigod Incarnate Subservient wife. Do as he tells you. Children, seen and not heard, and preferably not seen either. Be obedient. Slaves, get on with your work. There's there's value in this work, and yes, I want to invest in you, but get on with your work. That kind of tone, all right? What's Paul saying to us? Paul is saying something, actually when you enter what we're reading this morning. The master actually isn't the demigod anymore. Jesus is God. The master of the house has a master in heaven. And everyone is valued. As we're going to explore together, we're going to see that actually there's a whole interdynamic husbands and wives, parents and children, slaves and masters, a, a, a dynamic working between these kind of sets of relationships where everybody is valued and given status. Uh, that makes the whole thing countercultural. Um, I want to suggest to us, if we can move on, that there are three A's to get a hold of, to help us understand what Paul is saying here. There's an attitude that I believe we need to get hold of, that Christ is all in all. That everything we do is directed to him and done for him. Now, we're using... I mean, I'm talking to a large group of Christians this morning who may have heard some of this stuff before, and we kind of have a kind of... Uh, What's the word I want? Become kind of inoculated against this. We kind of just hear it and don't hear it. So, when Paul's talking about something that's fitting in the Lord, something that is pleasing the Lord, something that is for the Lord, we think, yeah, that's what we do as Christians. That's right. But actually, is that really what we're doing in the day to day? Is the question that I've been challenged with as I've been looking at this this week. See, we need an attitude that says that that really is my mindset not just the words I've heard and I believe and pass on from but it's actually a mindset I'm carrying it's it's kind of the reason why I'm doing everything that I'm doing there's no room for dualism in Paul's thinking Uh, that daily life doesn't involve Jesus everything we do is primarily to please him he's to come before those around us he is more important now for those who are subservient in Colossae this is kind of a word of hope because actually is kind of lifting their horizons to somebody, somebody bigger, somebody greater. That's why they're doing what they're doing. For some of us, that's probably more of a challenge. Because actually, in our human relationships, there's probably a certain measure of self-sufficiency. We've got people around us that we feel part of, we're connected with, and, and we like to please. That can actually mean there's not an in- of this incentive to see that we need to be doing it for a bigger and a higher reason. And we can live, I would suggest, our day-to-day, not thinking enough about why am I really doing what I'm doing? Am I pleasing myself or am I pleasing those around me? Or am I pleasing Jesus? What's our attitude that's kind of underpinning what we do in the day-to-day. If that attitude's in place, that we're trying to please Jesus, I want to su- suggest there's an atmosphere that flows from that. And it's an atmosphere which creates dignity and respect for all uh, around us because if we're living to please Jesus then we're seeking to be clothed in the new self we've been looking at that Steve explained to us last week being renewed in the image of our creator and as that Christ-likeness takes root in us so it flows out from us and generates those godly qualities of character that we looked at last week qualities of kindness, humility, patience, forgiveness, love and they will be evident to others around. It means that everyone will feel treated with dignity and respect. There's kind of an atmosphere in our homes where everyone is valued, everyone counts. And life is conducted in such a way that is consistent with Jesus being Lord. And that, I think, means that if there's an attitude that we're living with that's created an atmosphere, then inevitably there's actions that are kind of underpinning that. How is the household to be created where compassion, kindness, humility and such like can flow out? And Paul now sets that out in the context of the natural family, wise husbands, children, parents. And what we might think of in more of the kind of workplace situation, which is the dynamic between slaves and masters.
2: So let's unpack this a little bit, if we can. We've all heard it. That's the trouble. Like Keith said, we've all heard it so many times, haven't we? What we have to remember is how amazingly startlingly countercultural this was the first time round. Poor old Paul, he got sort of beaten and hounded and imprisoned for saying it because it was countercultural one way. And we give him a hard time because it's now countercultural another way. So we can't really win, can he? I, I wonder what we think... As women or men for that matter, when we read the verse, wives submit to your husband as is fitting to the Lord. It inevitably comes through a filter that we have in our heads. It might be a filter from history, Victorian England. It might be a filter from our own childhood. It might be a filter from abusive relationships that we've been in. Um, but it will be stirring things up. And when the Colossians heard it, it stirred things up. Do you know what? The word of God stirs things up. And that's what it's meant to do. So um, let's look at this. What I wanted to do with this verse, wife, submit to your husband as is fitting to the Lord, is try and unpack it, expand it, to, I think, get across the meaning that would have come across to the people who heard it, because there's things like Greek doing things and what have you. Okay, so let's have a go at this and see how we go. Wives, make a positive, willing choice to yield your own rights in order to win over, reconcile, and make friends with your husband for mutual gain in a way that is appropriate for those who are disciples of Jesus. Okay, that's come up there. Now, do we have a problem with that? Well, possibly. You see, when the women of Colossae heard that, they would have gone, oh, hey, I've got rights. He's telling me I've got rights. He's telling me I've got a choice. What I do is my rights. Wow. Nobody's ever told me that before. They just told me I had to do what I was told and get on with it. This is amazing. And the men are all sitting there squirming and thinking, oh my goodness, she's got rights. He's telling her she can choose to yield them. That means she can choose not to yield them. Help. And there's a buzz around the room. When we see it, we think, my rights are my rights. My rights are what I fight for. Nobody's having my rights. It's countercultural, whether you were there then or whether we're there now. What um, Paul is calling us to do, you see, the women of Colossae, the only thing they would have had at their fingertips was manipulation. Because on the face of it, they just had to do as they were told. I don't know how many of you have seen the movie, My Big Fat Greek Wedding. Well, there's a, there's a quote in that. There's a, there's a dad in that who is blustering away and going, my daughter's not going to college. My daughter just needs to get married. She's not going to college. And uh, the girl is quite old. She's in her late 20s, for goodness sake. Um, and her mother says to her, don't worry. She says, the man is the head of the household. But the woman is the neck, and she may turn him wherever she pleases. <laughs> That's manipulation. That's the only thing that the women had to resort to when they felt they had no rights. And what Jesus is saying is we have rights as God's children. But we have, he wants us to choose to lay them down. To yield them of our own free will for the mutual benefit so that together with our husbands, we can live as Christ would have us live. Which means manipulation goes out the window, girls. Now, I've had a bit of a sort of, I don't know, a bit of a moment preparing this, because I, I thought I got submission and headship nailed, you know, been there, done that, bought the t shirt, got the video. And I feel like God's taken to me, me to a whole deeper place. About yielding rights and laying something down at a really deep level. That ha- actually, I'm probably a slow learner, but I don't think I've been here before. And it's kind of sweet but tricky all at the same time. It's no longer about mindless, unquestioning obedience, which it was before with Peter and his household. It's something offered now. Sorry, Pete. It's something offered, not something demanded. Something given, not taken. You see, Paul really had this nailed. He wrote to another group of people in Philippi. He wrote, you should be like Jesus, who didn't count equality something to be grabbed, but who emptied himself. You know, if I had the bottle, I'd empty the jug. Who emptied himself. That's what this is all about. That's the spirit that Paul's talking about. Emptying ourselves of self so that compassion, love, humility, gentleness, kindness, patience and forgiveness can flow when we're filled up with the spirit. And as an act of faith to Jesus, I will lay down my rights. I will empty myself of self in order that I can relate to Keith in reconciliation, friendship, for our mutual gain, and to model something to the world. It's putting on the new self in a really, really practical way. Now, I don't know what that's going to look like in your household. I'm not altogether sure how it's going to completely look in mine in a new way either. I'll let you know next week. Um, but just ask God. What that might look like for you. Because Paul doesn't tell them what to do. He doesn't tell them what it's going to look like. Oh, husbands. Yes.
0: So you see, for, for guys, then the challenge was to love your wives and not be harsh with them. Now, the parallel we've got here is Paul's letter to the Ephesians, which probably would have gone around that area and also been heard in Colossae where he talks to, about loving our wives as Christ loved the church. And I'm always aware that the guys get the heavier deal in this. You know, choosing to lay down your rights is one thing. Laying down your life to death is a little bit more painful. Which actually is what we're being asked to do as guys. Now, I don't—I guess that's a constant working out as, as a husband, as it were, in a marriage. Um, but we are challenged to love in this unreasonable way in a way that results in the laying down of our own lives, because we don't come first. Now, when this passage then goes on to say to us, and do not be harsh with them, that kind of implies you know, getting the whip out and beating our wives up on a daily basis, but not to do that. But that actually is not perhaps the best reading of the Greek. The challenge actually is is a deeper one, I think, for, for us as guys, because better way of reading the Greek is to say, husband, love your wives in such a way that your expectations of her don't allow you as the husband to become bitter. So now there's a whole thing about attitudes in my head here that I actually have to submit. It's not just a case of get my actions in order, it's actually get my head in order on what's going on up here, what I'm thinking, what I'm demanding. Am I resenting my wife because I can't get enough sex? Am I resenting the way she looks, but telling her there's never enough money to buy new clothes? I'm resenting that she never has time for me, because she's always busy with the kids, or the housework, or the cooking, or whatever. But I'm leaving it all to her, because that's her responsibility, because I'm the man of the house. Stereotypes may be, but I'm afraid I've met all those attitudes in various guise over the years. So I know that I'm not just, apart from talking to myself, I've heard those mirrored. And I think they're challenges to all of us guys. What are our expectations? I think there's some scope here for a bit of honest self-reflection. A bit of repentance maybe and some good communication. Children. No.
2: Okay, it's gone a bit quiet around here. That's good, isn't it? You're all there, still breathing. Good. So children. Now, this was a bit radical. Paul said, suddenly said children, and they all jumped. Because, you know, people didn't talk to children, not adults. Seen and not heard. And suddenly, Paul is dignifying them with something in his letter that's addressed to them. And he's saying, children, obey your parents in everything Because it pleases the Lord. Oh, wow. It's about pleasing somebody else. It's not about mindless obedience again. So can we just have a little sort of pause and a little think of parents? We've got a few parents around, haven't we? The first question is, are you training your children at all? Um, I work in several schools, some of them extremely chaotic And uh, I see every single day children who nobody is bothering to train. And they are scared out of their little wits. Have you ever played that game where you stand up and somebody says, fall backwards and I'll catch you? I hate that. Um, If a child has no training, it's like falling back and nobody catches you. You just hit the ground with a bang And it's terrifying. And I meet terrified children. And all the time they're looking for boundaries. They do quite extreme things. When the seven-year-old lifted up a chair like this above his head and came at at me with it, about to throw it at me, I thought, this child probably has no boundaries at home. He he thought better of it and threw it on the floor instead. That's an extreme situation, isn't it? But do you not think... I mean, I have heard of, of, of Christians who say we really feel that psychologically we shouldn't cross our children's will. It's probably not good for their development. Are we training them? It's not the same as demanding obedience. You know the story about the child who's kept standing up on their chair at at the table and the parents kept saying, sit down, sit down. And the child sat down in the end and looked at their parents and went, I'm still standing up inside. That's what mindless obedience tries to produce. Just do as I say, forget what's going on inside. It's not the same as reactive anger or frustration. And I regularly feel the need to apologize for my children when I disciplined them as they were growing up out of anger and frustration. And because I was tired and I was fed up and it was my fault. Training is a proactive process. We have expectations which are clearly laid out. I expect you to sit on your chair and eat sensibly so that everybody else can enjoy their meal. Encouragement's given. Well done. You're you're really sitting well. You're really eating nicely. It's really good to share a meal with you. And enabling. They have a child-sized knife and fork and a spoon and... Food that's in the right. This is a silly example, but you know, you can do this at any age. Encouragement, uh, sorry, expectation, encouragement, and enabling. I need you to tidy your bedroom. Shall I come and help you? Shall we fold these things together? Shall I put the things where you can't, that you can't reach, away for you? Rewards given when they meet your expectations. You can get down now. You sat really lovely. Would you like to, oh, silly example, would you like to go and get a sweetie from the tin? I don't know. But there's something. Our reward for getting it right is God gives us a great big hug and says, well done, good and faithful servant. It doesn't have to be a thing. I'm allergic to people who pay their kids for GCSE. I'm sorry if that offends you, but well done. And a hug, it goes a long way. And if they don't meet your expectations that have been clearly laid out, then discipline may need to follow. Um, I'm going to show Simon and Emily up that they're living with us. And it was so funny to watch the dinner going in the fridge and coming out for breakfast. Because I remember doing that with my kids. It still works. (laughs) And she ate it. And then she ate her breakfast and she was fine. So whatever. Whatever. So train them. Please train them if you love them. But why are we training them? What are we training them to do? We're training them to please another. To please another. To have a heart to please us. That's a good start. I... I, uh, I once took Ruth, oh sorry, I wasn't going to say which child it was, it was Ruth. I once took Ruth, (laughs) Ruth shopping when she was five and she had some birthday money and we were looking for some clothes. And we went round six different shops and she kept going, no daddy wouldn't like that. No, no daddy wouldn't like that. No daddy wouldn't like that one. And eventually we bought something and we took it home and we walked, walked in the door. And I'm thinking, please, Keith, please react. <laughs> Say something. Like it. She's showing him and he went, oh, that's lovely. I really like that. And her little heart, because I spent my life saying to her, what do you think Daddy would like? What do you think Daddy, how do you think Daddy would like you to do this? What do you think Daddy would like? She was, she was looking for something that would please her Daddy and he would do it to me. Now, this is not... I'm not stopping there. This was a start. They were very small. The idea is you train them to be father-pleasers with a capital F. God-pleasers. Yeah? We're training God-pleasers. What's going to protect our kids from peer pressure more than being a God-pleaser? Are they going to want to just do what their friends do? Or are they going to be God-pleasers? Because this verse says, Children, obey your parents and everything, for this pleases the Lord. Train them to be God pleasers. But the other side of the coin is parents. Don't embitter and discourage them. You know, that desperate giving upness when you can't ever get it right. My dad's favourite phrase, God bless him to me, was that's not bad, Eileen, for a girl. <laughs> I became a little dispirited and discouraged. And God had a bit of unpacking to do. Don't dispirit and discourage them. Don't overcorrect them. Don't make it always, no, 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 no. I, I love watching the Blakey family in operation. It wasn't just, no, don't listen to that music. It was, get in the car, we'll take you miles to a delirious concert. You know, it wasn't, no, don't just read that book. It was, here, have this one. It wasn't, no, don't just watch that DVD. It was, we've got an, It wasn't always, no, 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 no. There was encouragement and support and help. Because, do you know what? Their God is our God. I'm God's child. They're God's children. We're parents, but we're brothers and sisters as well. Yeah? We're on a journey together. We just might be a little bit ahead of our kids until they get old enough, and then they go past you. And that's wonderful. Okay. Rewind. Slaves and masters. I guess... What we usually do with slaves and masters... Keith's telling me to speed up, I'm sorry. What we usually do with, with um, slaves and masters is look at work. I think work's a really interesting one. Did you pick out this morning three people saying thank you to do with work? I think work's going to be a biggie for us in the, in the coming months and years. Huge numbers of people have made redundant. People are now being asked to take pay cuts and keep their jobs. There's a lot going on around the world of work. Are we going to join in... Are we going to be different? Are we going to show a different way of doing things? Are we going to do our work as if we're doing it for the Lord? Are we going to see our work as a spiritual issue, as an act of worship? Going into the schools I go in on a Monday morning thinking, Lord, this is an act of worship it is it's actually sometimes presenting my body as a living sacrifice because i don't know what's going to be done to it that day <laughs> it really is what's going to the quality of my work going to be like am i going to get away with as little as possible am i going to be have integrity am i going to be the person who brings stationery home from the office or steals time for me it's stealing time how long was that lunch break Chatting with people, building relationships, or stealing time. Um, am I going to do it wholeheartedly, or am I going to groan and yawn and look at the clock and wish it was Friday? Ooh, I do that sometimes. Am I going to work as if Jesus was in the room? It's, it's silly when we talk about taking Jesus to work with us. Why do we do that? He's already there, he's waiting. He opens the door of my office on a Monday morning and goes, Welcome, Eileen. Come and sit down. We've got a big day today. Um, Our work is rewarded. It's not going to be rewarded with pay rises, folks. Very few of us are going to be rewarded with pay rises. It's going to be the same reward as, as our children. A big hug. Well done. Good and faithful servant. You did that work for me. We're going to fight for our own rights. Are we going to fight for the rights of other people? Are we going to make sure other people get a just reward, even if it means we don't get the promotion or we don't get the pay rise? It's been really interesting watching some of the car factories in the north of England where people have said, we will take a pay rise so that all of these people can keep their jobs. Pay Pay cut. Did I get it wrong? Sorry, I'm looking looking at Graham. He's going, no, no, no. no." (laughs) Pay cap. Yeah. And work dignifies us, those people who testified this morning, you know, Angus feels dignified by the job he's got. Where was Lois? Dignified by, and Mark, dignified by the work that we do. I think we're going to have to face the challenge of, of how we help people who are made unemployed retain dignity what can we give them which is real work in the kingdom of God but which is not going to have a financial reward let's not moan about work let's thank the Lord for it
0: okay so let's bring this all into land we spent a lot of time unpacking the family side of life um, we could have spent longer unpacking the work side as well, it's not that one is more important than the other. It's just that once my wife gets onto a roll, you know, um, it all goes well. All that, back to where we started. All that we 've tried to say this morning, as we try to unpack these verses, is that what Paul is saying to us is countercultural. The whole thing he was saying to those guys in Colossae was a whole different way of seeing their relationships than the sound they were used to. From the people around them. Uh, and so what does that mean for us to read a letter and actually hear it cross counterculturally in twenty first century Britain? I think there's a real challenge, first of all, to us this morning, back to where Steve was with us last week of are we lining our lives up with the word of God? Or are we allowing the norms of society around us to be that which kind of essentially shapes how we think, how we behave, how we do what we do? Because I think there's a challenge for us this morning to look afresh at our whole dynamic within our own homes. And while I'm aware that we're small, we're talking because that's what the Word of God says to us about husbands, wives, children and slaves and masters. Single or married, there are we don't live in isolation. We live amongst a group of people who we relate to, who we interact with. What's controlling our values and our attitudes? Is it the word of God or is it the norms of the society around us because they shout louder? Our, having been challenged, are we lined up with the word of God? There's thing a consequence that flows from that once we start to put that in order which is the potential for transformation, not just of ourselves, but for the world around us. Um, some evidence suggests that Paul having set this out to the churches in Colossae and the surrounding regions, as the Christians started to put that into place, small in number as they were and persecuted as they were, it started to actually change the dynamic of society around them, that actually over time saw values change both for family dynamic and for the work dynamic there's a transformation that will go on as we take the word of God seriously and put it into practice are we keeping our lights therefore under a bed as uh, Luke 8 16 uh, asked us or are we allowing it to be shown this transformation that God's working into us, are we just enjoying it and keeping it to ourselves or are we allowing it to get out there and to be seen to those around us that's more possible in the workplace than maybe in the household particularly in the way we live behind our kind of four walls in Britain but I think there's a challenge to us there to see the consequence of transformation flow out and I think with that particularly as God has moved us towards being more of a missional people, it's a provocation as well here that actually we do have to take this seriously because if we're going to have something to take to a society around us that needs to be something different it's great to want to be kind of to fit in, to be accepted, to be able to identify with folk. Which if it's the same as they are, where's the provocation, the challenge to them? Surely we've got to be carrying, communicating something different in order that questions are asked. Hope is brought to some people. and questions are brought to others. But we've got to be different and we've got to get our own houses in order surely and line up with the word of God if we're going to be affected missionally. Now all of that might sound like we've got to do this, we've got to do that, we've got to do the other. And what I want to finish this morning is uh, the secret to all of this goes back to God himself. If we look at the parallel passage in Ephesians 5 where Paul talks to the Ephesian church in more detail but says pretty much the same sort of things as we've been unpacking here from Colossians, that is preceded with a very familiar verse that we we love to sort of uh, draw on for our own benefit which is, be being filled with the Holy Spirit. I want to suggest to us this morning exactly is where we need to finish. That in order to be people whose lives are being transformed, in order that our family life and our work life is different, we need to come back to recognise we can't do stuff about any of that unless we're filled with the power of God to do it. And we need to be a people who are filled with his spirit and empowered by God then to put stuff in place that makes us live differently, maybe to how we were living last week, as we go into next week. And just one provocative afterthought, that, um, thinking about four, chapter 4, verse 1. Masters, provide your slaves with what's right and fair, because you know that you also have a master in heaven. Part of living differently is this for a thought. If, rather than just transposing it all to the workplace, we think about us as masters... Who are the slaves who work for us? Who are the people who provide what those slaves would have provided? the food, the clothes for us? Are they not the people we pay indirectly to the supermarket tills? They may work thousands of miles away, but are we treating them with rightness and fairness, with justice and with equity? I don't know the simple answer to that but I'm provoked again about my values and what I do with them and how I make them work and where I spend my money and who my money ultimately goes to um, I do think there's a principle in scripture here that merits some serious ref- consideration, in addition to everything else we've said this morning Okay, here's what we're going to do I want to just give you two or three minutes just to allow some of that to take stock for you I feel like we've did, un- unapologetically but Deliberately thrown out a number of kind of bullets this morning of challenge because we've been challenged as we've read this through, prayed this through, studied this through these last couple of weeks. And I do feel there's a challenge that's coming to us afresh about how countercultural is the life that I am living? Because I do believe the appeal to the Colossians to be countercultural is a similar appeal to us. What are some of the practical implications for you, for your life? The attitudes and actions that you might need to line up with the Word of God. Is there something specific for those of us that are married or parents about how we interact with one another and with our children? And what about the workplace? Are we being wholehearted? People serving with integrity, seeing it as dignified, rewarding worship. And In the way we're living, are we just content to live behind our own four walls and get on with life and batten down the hatches? Or are we prepared to let our lights emerge from under the bed and to be seen by those around us? Four questions there for you to think about for a couple of minutes. And then we're going to finish in praying together.